Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies. The idea is that thinking about possible futures can give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. Today, we'll be asking forward-looking questions inspired by The World in 2019, The Economist's annual publication that considers the year ahead. And in particular, we'll be asking why Africa's Sahel region could be about to grow in importance for the wrong reasons. Experts are very wide that experienced fighters forced out of Syria and Iraq are increasingly moving to the Sahel to set up base. How advances in genetic screening could transform healthcare, but may also be a slippery slope towards designer babies. In the near term, I think that to the extent that there are, quote, designer babies in the world or, or babies which are sort of selected to have certain traits rather than others, that will be through uh, genetic testing and not through editing. And what the future looks like for couture designers in China. Grace Chan has a particular way of making fashion what is called experiential, which is once you've got all these beautiful things, what experiences can you have with it that you didn't have before? But first to the Sahel region in Africa, an area of land to the south of the Sahara that runs about 5,000 kilometres from the Atlantic Ocean in the west to the Red Sea in the east. Historically, the Sahel has been a geopolitical backwater. In fact, you may not even have heard of it. But in the coming months, it may well force itself onto the news agenda. To find out why, I'm joined by Will Brown, The Economist's West Africa correspondent. Hello, Will. Hi, Tom. So historically, the Sahel has been known as a transit area. Why is that? The region has a very long history of trans-Saharan trade and migrational herders. These trading routes have often turned into routes for African migrants to go on to Libya and then on to Europe. So the Sahel, as you said, the Sahel used to be kind of a very far away, difficult to reach land. But with the 4x4, you can drive across the Sahara in a matter of days. So uh, this this kind of migration uh, crisis, as some people called it, kind of came to a head in 2016, when about 330,000 migrants were crossing Niger and going on to Libya. But the migration to Sahel seems to be falling. So the EU and member states intervened and they've been funding huge counter-migration campaigns and strengthening border security. This has managed to cut, it seems, the number of migrants going through the Sahel, through Niger, to about 10,000 in 2018. But there are some short-term and long-term trends that mean it could be quite a disruptive region. Why is that? There's several factors. As you say, the, the migration seems to, is, to have fallen, but the Sahel has the potential to be an extraordinarily disruptive force on its own. So there are five key Sahelian countries, Mali, Mauritania, uh, Niger, Burkina Faso and Chad. And these countries have the fastest growing populations in the world. In Niger, for example, the average woman has about seven children. So today, the combined population of these countries is about 80 million. But the United Nations reckons that it could go up to 200 million in 30 years time. Now, given the right food, education, sanitation, these millions of young people could help work the region out of poverty. But that's probably not going to happen. These countries are highly corrupt and the Sahelian governments simply aren't investing enough in their own rural populations. Food production is and job creation isn't keeping up with population growth. This is bad already, but if you throw climate change into the mix, the Sahel's future starts to look really grim. 
Okay, so you've got things potentially changing very rapidly over the next few years. And then there's the immediate concern of extremism in the region. So how do those two connect? The region has a dizzying array of uh, powerful jihadist groups already. You've got groups affiliated to Al-Qaeda, an Islamic state, and a host of homegrown groups. You've got Boko Haram next door in northern Nigeria. And this matters because these groups are very well armed, and there seems to be more and more weapons coming to the region every day. Um, No one really has any solid data, but it's clear that a lot of Europe's cocaine is smuggled through the Sahel, and this is somehow helping to fund many of these groups. On top of this, experts are very wide that experienced fighters forced out of Syria and Iraq are increasingly moving to the Sahel to set up base. Another thing which is really worrying is a huge rise of self-defense groups across the Sahel in areas where the government simply can't provide security. These groups vary. Some are gangs of cow herders who punish people who steal from them, but many others are ethnic militias who butcher and torture communities that they suspect of helping terrorists. And who is mainly being killed? Is it young men who are being killed? We have a, if they come, it's everybody. And they will even burn the village. And these are Doso hunters on. Doso hunters, okay. Morning, six o'clock. They come and surround the village. And they start shooting until two o'clock. They killed three people. And what they did is they take a knife and they cut that person's into two pieces and took his heart away. And there is another one who's called Abudu. He was burned. What they did, they shoot him. Mm. When he was uh, injured, yeah. he fell down. And they yeah. come and burn him. That was me speaking to Amadou Barry, uh, an ethnic Fulani herder who fled to Mali's capital, Bamako, after his village was attacked. This, in turn, is leading to more radicalization in the region and is all part of this downward security spiral the region finds itself in. So what does this mean in practice? Does it just mean that extremists will be using it as a base to attack other countries such as Nigeria? Or does this mean wider problems as this becomes a sort of new centre for terrorism? So I think the first problem will be for the region. These are incredibly fragile states already. And uh, the governments are really struggling to provide security to their populations. But we have to remember that this region is, I mean, it used to seem very far away, but it's really just underneath Europe. So it has got very serious geopolitical potential knock-on effects if this region is destabilised. So what can be done to make this potentially rather unstable region less of a danger both to the region and to the to the world more generally? You've already got a kind of a vast array of international actors in the Sahel. I think the problem is they're not particularly coordinated. So you've got, you know, you've got the French, you've got the Americans, you've got the EU, you've got Germany, you've got all these NGOs and you've got all these UN bodies and they've all got their own kind of agendas and and mission statements. Um, The UN's most dangerous peacekeeping mission isn't in the Middle East or Congo, it's, it's here in the Sahel, in Mali. There's a new regional security force. It's been largely pushed by France. It's called the G5 Sahel. It's got several thousand soldiers from Sahelian countries, and it's meant to kind of be local actors taking more responsibility of their own security. But the the bad thing is that this force is really struggling to get off the ground. Um, In the midst of all of this, the Trump administration is cutting America's forces in Africa. So over the next year, you might see Europe 
probably stepping up its involvement in the Sahel. Last year, I spoke to the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, and he, he's, he's been very vocal on the issue. He told me that we really only have a few years to kind of sort out a lot of these factors before the region goes past the point of no return. So this is a region that people may not have heard of now, but they're going to hear about it pretty soon, perhaps. Uh, yes, I think increasingly we're, being, we're going to be hearing more and more about the Sahel. We really cannot underestimate the jihadist groups operating here. They're well-armed, they're clever, they know how to win over local populations, and they've got a long-term agenda. That all sounds very worrying. Thanks for joining us, Will. Thanks, Tom. Coming up next, I'm joined by Professor Stephen Sue to discuss the future of genetics and healthcare, right after this. Next, the future of genetics and healthcare. With the greater speed and lower cost of DNA analysis, there's suddenly a huge amount of human genetic information available. And using machine learning, it's becoming easier to identify something called a polygenic risk score, or a likelihood that an individual will suffer a particular disease. But how much further will this go, and what will the future look like? One company that's developing this technique is Genomic Prediction, and I'm joined by one of its co-founders, Professor Stephen Sue. Stephen, welcome to The World Ahead. Now, you're a professor of theoretical physics, and you're also vice president of research at Michigan State University, and you founded several software startups, but now you're doing genomics. So what's the connection between all these things? Well, the connection is really just uh, mathematics, and it turns out that the machine learning and AI that we're applying to genomics is the kind of thing that a theoretical physicist finds himself quite at home doing. So the particular application you're looking at is to produce something called a polygenic risk score. So what is that exactly? The idea is to, from the information in someone's genome alone, be able to say something about their phenotype. And phenotype is a fancy word for some complex trait like the height of the person or the likelihood that they'll have a heart attack. So you're able to figure out how likely someone is to have a heart attack by looking at what? You're not sequencing the whole genome here, are you? We're using inexpensive genotyping of the kind you can get from, say, 23andMe for $100. And that technology uses about a million probes to measure your genetic variant at about a million locations in your genome. And those are the most informative million or so sites on your genome. And then what happens is that the information from those million different variants is used in machine learning. So we show the algorithm examples of people, so the genomes of real people, and then we tell them whether that particular individual had a heart attack or has a healthy heart. And the algorithms actually learn to distinguish between the genomes of someone who is likely to have a heart attack and those that are not likely to have a heart attack. What else could you predict and how accurate are these predictions? Uh, let me start with the most accurate things. For example, um, height. Human height is highly heritable, how tall you will grow, assuming you had a good environment and enough nutrition growing up. The best predictor, the one that we've trained, predicts your height from genome alone to accuracy of about one inch. Right. That's pretty impressive. So what kinds of things might you be able to predict in the future with this? And what could you tell me about my future health? So uh, already there are about 20 different complex diseases for which we can do prediction at the level I described, which is sort of we can identify the top few percent outliers and they have uh, really materially higher risk of everybody else uh, of getting that condition. 
among the conditions we can already do are things like breast cancer, prostate cancer, diabetes, heart attack, atrial fibrillation, hypothyroidism. It's, it's quite a long list of common conditions. Those predictors will get better and better as we get more data, as, as the algorithm is allowed to look at more examples of people. And so eventually we'll be able to probably identify, um, you know, if, if a particular disease has 5% chance of happening in the general population, we'll have a pretty good chance of narrowing it down to maybe the 10% of people, half of whom are going to get that condition. Okay. Now, a slightly more controversial aspect of this is the fact that you can do all of this with embryos too. So if I'm having IVF and there are five embryos and I'm making this selection with my partner about which one's going to be implanted, you can tell me, well, this one might have heart disease and, and so on and so on. That's happening now, right? So we are actually working with clinics already. We have a pipeline which takes the standard biopsy from the IVF embryo. That biopsy is currently mainly used to just test for Down syndrome in the embryo. But we then amplify the DNA further, and we can actually run all of these predictors on each embryo. And so the, parent, the IVF doctor receives a report on the risk profile and health profile of each embryo, and they can advise the parents that, for example, oh, you produced five embryos in this cycle, they all seem viable. However, number four looks like it's going to have materially different health problems, risks than the other, uh, the other embryos, and we suggest you implant one of the other ones. But presumably the parents are saying, well, great, tell me who's going to be the tallest, who's got the fast twitch muscle, who's going to be good at football, what color eyes they're going to have. I mean, this is the sort of thing people are going to be wanting to know. Can you tell them? I think one of the most difficult things we are doing as a startup is trying to balance the types of predictions that we can make about each embryo, which include things like cosmetic traits, like eye color that you mentioned, how tall the person will be, and even some indications of whether they'll be above average or below average in cognitive ability. We can already do those things, but we're not comfortable in giving the results for things that we think society has not come to a kind of consensus that it's appropriate to do. So for example, at the moment, we don't do cosmetic traits, so we don't tell you that your, which kid has going to have blue eyes. And uh, we also won't really give you very much information about the cognitive ability. We'll only warn you if there's elevated risk of mental disability, which is a medical trait and has a medical definition. Now, people will have heard of CRISPR, which is the the editing of genomes. And obviously, there's been this very controversial case in China recently uh, where a, a doctor edited two, the genomes of, of two uh, embryos who went on to become twin girls. This is not about editing. This is about selection. But um, some of the same worries that people have about designer babies and you know being able to choose the nature of your children still apply. Isn't this designer babies via the back door? Yes. In the near term, I think that to the extent that there are, quote, designer babies in the world or, or babies which are sort of selected to have certain traits rather than others, that will be through uh, genetic testing and not through editing. The main reason being that these complex traits that we're talking about, whether it's diabetes risk or um, how tall you are, they're controlled generally by hundreds or thousands of different genetic loci. And so to edit that number of loci is currently beyond our capability. And actually, we don't exactly know how we would do those edits, uh, even if we could. And so for the moment, you can figure out which of the embryos will be the tallest, but you uh, can't take one of the short ones and edit it so it will be tall. That may eventually happen. Uh, I actually think it will eventually happen, but that may be delayed by, you know, decades from now. Okay. This is a slightly different angle here, but are there forensic uses for this? I mean, presumably you could take a sample from a crime scene and then you could predict things about the assailant. Yes. Uh, there are already uh, 
companies in the startups in the U.S. that are offering to law enforcement the capability to process a sample of DNA and to both give a kind of description of the individual. Uh, the killer was a Japanese guy, six foot two, heavy set. Um, so that is possible already. And secondly, which is even more amazing, I think, to people who haven't thought about it, is that given that there are now databases with millions of people's genomes in them, you're almost guaranteed to be able to find a second or third cousin of the killer right away. And so there are cold cases where a, a serial killer has gotten away with multiple murders, was not on anybody's suspect list and has lived quietly for 30 years and then they, the police get him because they have a DNA sample that's been preserved. The other thing people are doing, I believe, is trying to predict facial features. Again, if you've got a big enough database of faces and, and genotypes, then presumably you can do it. How is What's the state of the art of that? Is that working? Could you do that? Um, it is almost certainly solvable. The only issue is that we don't have large enough data sets yet with face recognition parameters, i.e. good uh, pictures of the people's faces combined with their genotypes. But once we get, say, a million um, people for whom we have the genotype and you know a couple of good photos of their face, um, yes, we will be able to do facial feature prediction as well. Well, that's a very different world from just picking up fingerprints, isn't it? Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much, Stephen Sue. My pleasure. And finally, from designing babies to the somewhat less controversial practice of designing clothes. In China, couture design is in big demand and a couple of Chinese designers are starting to gain influence in fashion around the world. To discuss this, I'm joined in the studio by the head of Economist Radio, Anne McElvoy, who recently went to China to find out about this for herself. Hello, Anne. Hello there, Tom. So what's going on exactly? Well, this is a rise in interest in very top-end homemade Chinese couture. It's different from luxury goods, which we've often written about in the context of China as wealth has risen and they're prodigious consumers of luxury goods, but mainly made in the West by those big Western brands that we all know. Grace Chen, who I dropped in on in Shanghai, who has a very beautiful studio there, she is the go-to very classical, elegant, high-end Chinese couturier. She is worn by uh, wives of leading politicians. But most interestingly, Tom, I thought as we look forward, her customer base is women who've made their own money, lots of money. The top 3%, she says, well, that's a lot of noughts. So there are a lot of Chinese female billionaires. In fact, there are more than in any other country, aren't there? So this is the, the brand that they favour, is it? The roughly two-thirds of the richest self-made women in the world are thought to be Chinese. And, of course, they'll have different styles and different tastes. They can certainly afford it. So a lot of them will be sticking with those old luxury brands. But I think what Grace Chen is onto here, she keeps using that word. She says powerfulness. She means power, femininity combined. And I think it's a sense that the Chinese consumer enjoys being part of a renaissance of Chinese design. When you've got the third Dior handbag, should this ever happen to me, Tom, you know, you maybe don't want the fourth. And you want something that is very delicate. But she uses this word power. And I think that's not incidental. I think there's a slightly soft fashion nationalism going on here, which is you go abroad, you go to some fantastic event, you're one of the best dressed women in the room bar non, and you can say, this is Chinese couture. So these are pieces for special occasions. But what about business people who want to project this powerfulness and, and so forth? Is she also catering to that audience? 
Oh, absolutely. And I think that is her core audience, really. It is people who are going to come back again and again. We went into a room of rather quieter clothes, so not so much of the bling and, and sequins or silver, fantastically made suits and coats. And she said to me, this is for when you launch your IPO. Come that happy day, I'll think of going back there. But it was very interesting. I don't think anyone has ever said that to me when I've gone to see designers. And the idea is it is, of course, very beautiful, structured. You can have it changed around every little quirk of your body or style. But it is to say, I am here as a woman in business. I can sit alongside the men on any platform. She obviously understands her target market very well. How does the sort of service that she offers them differ from what you might expect from a Western designer? Grace Chan has a particular way of making fashion what is called experiential in the jargon, which is once you've got all these beautiful things, what experiences can you have with it that you didn't have before? And in the case of her clients, I was very interested in where they wear their clothes. She made the point that that they can have great social lives, they will have a social network, but they're a little careful, particularly at the very top end of wealth, not to be showing it off too much. And politically, the wind can change around that. So what they often do is go with her. These will be her clients who come back again and again. We'll go off on a trip to New York or recently to the south of France or to Monaco, and it will be filmed. It's made for video for them for private use. They go to cocktail parties, they go to cultural events, they will wear these beautiful clothes and admire each other and look absolutely fabulous. But the idea that the designer is trusted to curate a lifestyle experience, not just that you get to copy hers, I thought this was actually very innovative indeed. And I thought she's onto something there. It's people want out of very high-end designer clothes more than just the item hanging in the wardrobe waiting for the next birthday. So did you buy any of these clothes? Well, I'd need to be starting at upwards of $4,000 for something substantial, right up to 12000 and beyond for those creation evening dresses. So shall we just say I'm saving up? And thanks very much indeed for joining us. And that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.